Good morning and welcome to this joint media briefing by the FDA and CDC on the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. On Tuesday, April 13th, the Food and Drug Administration, which regulates the safety and efficacy of vaccines and the Centers for Disease Control, held an unexpected briefing. Early that same morning, these federal agencies urged vaccine providers across the country to stop administering the Johnson & Johnson Janssen one-dose COVID vaccine. With that, I will now turn the call over to Acting FDA Commissioner Dr. Janet Woodcock. Thank you, and thank you all for joining us. This morning, the FDA and CDC announced that out of an abundance of caution, we're recommending a pause in the use of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine due to reports of six cases of a rare and severe type of blood clot following vaccine administration. Six women between the ages of 18 and 48 had experienced these clots. One was in critical condition and one of them died. Right now, I'd like to stress these events appear to be extremely rare. However, COVID-19 vaccine safety is a top priority for the federal government, and we take all reports of adverse events following vaccination very seriously. So, a pause. Dr. Ann Shuket, Principal Deputy Director of the CDC, seemed to know that this news was, at the very least, disconcerting to the nearly 7 million people who'd already gotten the J&J shot, and she spoke to them directly. I know that the information we're providing today is going to be very concerning to Americans who have already received the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen vaccine. And I want to let you know what we're doing to learn more and to protect people in the meantime and what you can do to be on the alert. What happened here? What do we know and what do we need to know about the safety of the J&J vaccine? Should this pause be lifted? Should administration of this one and done vaccine have been paused in the first place? What does this mean for supply as President Biden pushes to get all adults vaccinated by summer? Will this news make the challenge of vaccine hesitancy an even greater hurdle to overcome? Well, let's find out. From Texas Public Radio, this is a Petri Dish side dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Today, we're digging into the J&J pause with Dr. Ruth Berggren. Dr. Berggren is an infectious diseases doctor, and she is currently the director of the Center for Medical Humanities and Ethics at UT Health San Antonio. Berggren is no stranger to disaster. In August 2005, she was working at Charity Hospital in New Orleans treating patients with tuberculosis and opportunistic infections related to HIV and AIDS. That's when Hurricane Katrina devastated that city. She was among a handful of heroic doctors who, without running water or electricity, cared for hundreds of patients as the city took on water. Then, after coming to San Antonio, she volunteered to help care for some of the more than 30,000 people displaced by Hurricane Harvey 
which crashed into the Texas Gulf Coast in 2017, bringing catastrophic flooding to the Houston area. And now she's in San Antonio, guiding this city through the disaster of pandemic disease. Dr. Bergren is not easily shaken. She's been a voice of calm and rationality as the virus approached the United States last year. And that continued as we were battered by surge after surge of infections and deaths. So I thought she'd be an excellent person to help us sort out what in the world is going on with the J&J vaccine. She happily obliged. Well, the CDC and the FDA made a very appropriate announcement out of an abundance of caution asking us to pause using this vaccine pending further investigation of some concerning kinds of blood clots that may have been associated with vaccine administration. This is uh, very appropriate. And um, I everybody needs to know that the incidence of what they're talking about is extremely rare. It's actually less than one in a million. And it seems to be affecting a particular type of person, namely females in the 18 to 48 year age bracket. We don't know at this point in time whether the frequency of these blood clot events really exceeds what you might see in the normal population. But because this has been observed in a similar type of vaccine, namely the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is also an adenovirus vectored DNA vaccine against COVID-19, it is worth pausing to look at the risks and compare that to the potential benefits. What exactly happened to these six women after they got the J&J vaccine? So uh, within a window of time that was less than 14 days, um, they developed very unusual types of blood clots. Um, And these blood clots are associated with a low platelet count. So we've seen a phenomenon like this where you have a propensity to form clots at the same time as low platelets in, in another area of medicine. And we're we're well aware that in some people, when we give the blood thinner heparin, um, we can induce these antibodies that are specifically targeting something on your platelets. And when the antibodies go and bind there, they activate the platelets, they flip a switch. And these activated platelets do all sorts of things, which they're supposed to do normally, which is, you know, go and form blood clots. But um, in this case, the antibodies can also cause there to be clumping as well as um, removal of the platelets from circulation. So you have platelets that want to form clumps and you have platelets that are getting pulled out of the circulation. So there's fewer of them and you can get this scenario where you have both a tendency to bleed and a tendency to clot. So it's a, it's an unusual situation, but there's more to it because we are seeing the clots in specific locations. Um, We're seeing them in the brain in what's called the venous sinus, which is this big, you know, big veins where uh, blood flow that has been supplying your brain, it, blood, the blood is draining out. 
and eventually going to your internal jugular vein. And we're seeing clots there and we're seeing clots in the spleen, what's called the splanchnic bed. Um, that doesn't mean you can't get clots other elsewhere. I mean, the clots really could occur anywhere with this phenomenon, uh, but what's been reported is in these unusual locations. Bergren just mentioned the venous sinus, and that's a reference to the most worrisome possible complication here, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, CVST, which is basically a rare kind of stroke. And it has been seen, again, rarely, but it has been seen with another adenovirus COVID vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine. A week after getting the AstraZeneca vaccine, a 37-year-old woman in Norway showed up at the hospital with an excruciating, persistent headache and a fever. Imaging found a clot in the venous sinus along with low platelets, known as thrombocytopenia. The woman was infused with platelets and given a blood thinner. The standard of care in this situation, as Berggren explained, but the next day, she started bleeding in her brain. She died two days later. See, in a case like this, the standard of care for typical cases of CVST will make a patient sicker, not better, Berggren says. But if a doctor knows what they're dealing with, there are treatments. Fortunately, um, there is a strategy that we have in medicine to deal with abnormal antibodies. So when our body is making self-antibodies or autoantibodies, um, we can sometimes knock them out or head them off um, by giving intravenous immune globulin. We abbreviate that IVIG. And so the best way that we know of at this time to address this problem is if we see the low platelets in this context, context being two to three weeks after having gotten an adenovirus vaccine, we're seeing very low platelets. Intravenous immunoglobulin is what's recommended. And what you're doing there is you're um, you're using antibodies to fight antibodies, <laughs> but the you're you know to simplify, you're giving good antibodies, lots of good antibodies that will go after the pathologic or bad antibodies, and then once they're once they're bound up, they're not going to continue to cause the problem. That's another reason the FDA and CDC wanted everyone to know about this potential complication, including doctors. If a patient comes to a doctor's office or emergency room and they discover the patient has low platelets, they need to ask if the patient has had the J&J or another adenovirus COVID vaccine so they can treat them appropriately. If these patients also have clots, including CVST, doctors need to know not to give them the blood thinner heparin. They'll need a different anticoagulant. There's a certain type of blood thinner if they do have clots that they can benefit from different than heparin. These are oral pills that are called direct oral anticoagulating medicines. Um, so we we want people to understand the mechanism of this um, who's at risk what to look for and to not be terrified and not be hopeless i say don't be terrified because less than one in a million 
And I say, don't be hopeless because we already know something about how to identify the problem and we have some treatments that are available. Okay, so what should people who've already had the J&J vaccine look for? So if you've had the J&J within the last three weeks, not three months ago, but within the last three weeks, what you want to do is be on the alert for evidence of bleeding or that's unusual or clotting. And specifically, you'd be looking for easy bruising of your skin or um, lots and lots of little tiny red dots on your skin that didn't used to be there before. Easily bleeding gums, such as when you brush your teeth or nosebleeds that are beyond the usual or unexpected. Those would be signs of bleeding to be aware of. If you had any of those, it would be wise to seek the advice of a medical professional who may, in that case, decide to get a complete blood count and measure your platelet count to see if the platelet count is normal or if it's low. Other things to look for would be problems in your body related to having a clot. And those could be anywhere in your body. But let's start with common places. So swelling in your arms or your legs, particularly what if you got swelling in the same arm where you had the J&J vaccine? Um, that's been reported. If you had that, you would want to, again, pre present yourself to a medical professional who may then do something such as an ultrasound to look for evidence of a blood clot. Now, blood clots can be in other places. They've been reported as happening in the spleen. So for that, it would be belly pain um, that you might be on the lookout for. They can present in your brain. So for that, um, a very, very severe headache, not just a random everyday headache like any of us might get when we haven't had our coffee or we waited too long before we ate lunch, but a really bad headache or anything that is a new neurologic symptoms like trouble finding words or uh, facial asymmetry, things that make you think about a stroke should also make you think about a blood clot in your brain. So those are all signs that you should look for. Please let me emphasize again, less than one in a million and only in a particular group of people that has been reported so far for J&J, &J, all women um, and all younger women. All younger women between 18 and 48. So they're what people have historically called women of childbearing age. So what do women of childbearing age have that's different than the rest of the population? It's estrogen. And um, we know when we look at other immune phenomena that estrogen definitely is an immune system modulator. And frankly, it's more of a rever upper than anything else. Um, for a totally different phenomenon, the anaphylactic allergic reaction to these vaccines, actually to other kinds of vaccines, they're almost exclusively in women. Um, because uh, due to effects of estrogen, uh, there's more reactivity of the immune system. So it may be related to this phenomenon that the, the presence of the estrogen um, may in fact uh, predispose to this kind of a, a, of a more a robust um, immunological reaction, including in the less than one in a million people, a pathological um, activation of the immune system. But scientists don't know for sure that estrogen has anything to do with this. 
And that's another reason behind the pause. They need time to figure out what's really going on here. Is this complication really linked to the vaccine? And if it is, what do these women have in common beyond estrogen that made them vulnerable to this complication? Still, some people wonder if a pause was justified, given that it's more likely you'll get killed by a meteorite than suffer CVST and thrombocytopenia after getting the J&J vaccine. And you're at far greater risk of getting COVID and experiencing dangerous blood clots related to that disease than clots related to any vaccine. So the risk is exceedingly low. And if we didn't have any other vaccines, I'm pretty sure we would all be saying, give us the Johnson & Johnson, right? No question about it, right? But I think the pause is justified because we have other vaccines that are equally effective at preventing death, maybe more, more effective in preventing symptomatic illness. And these other vaccines have not been associated with this phenomenon. So it's all relative. If we had no other vaccine options, I would say it would be probably a bad idea to be pausing this vaccine, but we have other options and that we can continue vaccinating people. Um, really, I don't see this pause causing a dent in the pace of vaccination, certainly not locally here in San Antonio. But pulling the J&J vaccine out of circulation, even temporarily, does complicate getting vaccines into some populations. There, there are lots of people who have difficulty to getting to a mass vaccination site. Uh, there are people who are vision or hearing impaired, people with mobility problems, people who are bed bound, and um, people who have psychological disorders that cause them to be very fearful when they get around crowds. These folks should not be left out. So instead of them coming to the big vaccine center, we need to go to them. Um, once you're going to mobilize a team to go out to small locations, vaccinating, you know, 50 to 100 people or even one by one, um, for logistical reasons, it just makes so much more sense um, to go once and not to have to go twice. So now for all of those places um, where we've been going, we will have to go a second time. And that can be done. It just it's going to take us longer to get people fully vaccinated and it's going to require more resources and more time. And remote, rural communities may find it more difficult to get vaccines. Rural communities are going to suffer more because um, these are places that typically don't have a lot of um, minus 80 freezers or the capacity for minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit storage. And so getting vaccine out to those places um, has been easier when we had a vaccine like J&J that didn't have the ultra cold storage but there is no shortage of misinformation and disinformation in rural communities or anywhere else. And there is a huge concern that this pause may push vaccine skeptics into the anti-vax category. I asked Dr. Bergren how she thinks the healthcare community can best combat that. How do you combat it? I Personally, I don't think you combat um, social media uh, wrong beliefs with right beliefs. Um, I think that just turns into kind of a shouting war with uh, people trolling each other and and uh, putting rude comments on on Twitter. Um, but I do believe that um, 
individuals and healthcare providers can establish trusting relationships with people, relationships that are not politicized, um, and that a calm, consistent presence and consistent message is all we really have to offer. And then reminding people that the risk of COVID is so much worse than the risk of the vaccine. Um, and and so much more likely, <laughs> so much more likely to get COVID and to have a bad outcome from it than it is to have a bad outcome from any one of these vaccines. You know, it is, it is to try to put the risk in some sort of context that people can relate to. If you look at the incidence of um, speed-related traffic mortality in San Antonio. I think I saw that something like 3.6 deaths per 100,000 people per year in San Antonio from driving. That doesn't stop anybody from going out on the highway and driving. 3.6 per 100,000. And now everybody's worried about a risk that is less than one in a million because we had six cases out of about 7 million doses that were given. And if you talk to someone who says this pause, this concern about this one in a million complication is evidence that none of the COVID vaccines are safe. I would hope to flip it around and say, look how careful we are. Look how closely our CDC and our FDA are watching this. And they're they're pulling this out of circulation right now um, when it's still the only evidence is that it's extremely, extremely rare um, in order to reassure all of us. So I think that um, the glass half full way for people to look at this is that we really do have people watching over this process. Um, they really do have our best interest at heart and they're being transparent and they're being timely. Bergren expects a decision on what's next for the J&J vaccine soon, and White House Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci thinks it will come within a week. What does Dr. Bergren think will happen? Well, she thinks the pause will be lifted, with the clear expectation that vaccine providers will talk to their patients about the potential risks. My belief is that there's going to be an increased focus on the informed consent process. Um, and I think that there will be an effort to offer people choice where choice is available. Um, it's important to restress again, you know, many women all over the world take oral contraception. The risk of this type of phenomenon or of, uh, not the thrombocytopenia per se, but of a blood clot is much higher from taking oral contraception than it is from this vaccine. The risk of having a clot from smoking is much higher than it is from having this vaccine. So I think we need to have um, clear messaging about relative risk. Anything to add, Dr. Bergren? You know, the best way to prevent a COVID death is to prevent a COVID infection. And this vaccine is our exit ramp and we really need to push ahead with vaccination and not let this be a setback to us. I get that this temporary hold on the J&J &J vaccine might make some people uneasy. 
After all, we're all kind of taking a leap of faith as we get vaccines that didn't even exist a year ago. But millions of us are taking that leap every day in the United States. I've taken that leap. I'm fully vaccinated, to my great relief. I got the first vaccine that was available to me as soon as it was available to me. It was not the J&J, it was the Pfizer, but you can bet I would have gotten the J&J if that was the first one offered to me. That's because the science on these vaccines is solid. Now, I don't want to minimize the fact that a woman died, perhaps in response to receiving the J&J vaccine. I am so sorry that happened. Now that we understand why it happened, this unique CVST and thrombocytopenia, doctors know what to look for. They know how to treat it. Scientists are now trying to figure out if this is, in fact, something about the adenovirus vaccines that triggers the immune system in these very rare cases to cause platelets to clot. We need to know this information. But one in a million One in a million. Nearly 570,000 Americans have died of this virus, and millions have experienced long-term complications. If I'm asked to choose between the risks associated with getting the vaccine and the risks associated with getting COVID, I like my odds with the vaccine. But if you're concerned about getting any of the COVID vaccines, that's okay. Talk to your doctor about it. They know you and they know your medical history. They can help you sort through all of the risks versus the benefits, and they can help you decide which vaccine is best for you. Like Dr. Bergen said, the best way to prevent a COVID death is to prevent a COVID infection. So sort through the information, then get a vaccine. This Petri dish side dish was produced by me. Sound design and music by Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Special thanks to Mark Mehmet for his continuing contributions to the show. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. Support for the Petri Dish podcast comes from Pay It Forward, providing sober living for newly recovering individuals with 92% success completion rate, allowing them to achieve self-sufficiency and long-term recovery. More at payitforwardsa.org.